Every stone, we're the stones, have to be shaped and fitted for our specific place in God's temple. I'll give you an idea. Be shapeable. When the stone is hard, God has a bigger hammer. Welcome to the Manna Bible Lessons Podcast. Manna is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. Fellow students, if you would open to Ephesians 2, Lord willing, we'll finish the chapter today, Ephesians 2, 11 to 22. Our lesson today is about reconciliation, about bringing people together, about mending broken relationships when you really want to nuke them. Um, yeah, I know you, you can relate to that, right? The truth is every one of us were created by God for close personal relationships with God and with other people. The very first commandment is what? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. And the second one is the hard one. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the neighbor is everybody, right? So these are relationship commands. From the very, very beginning, we were called to love God and love other people, which implies ongoing love, intimate relationships. Of course, when Adam and Eve sinned and alienated them and the entire human race from God, the vertical relationship with God was broken when they fell and chose to rebel against God. And it also broke their relationship with each other because when God confronted Adam, he said, what have you done? He took Eve and threw her under the bus. He said, she's the one who gave me blah, blah, blah. And if you hadn't given me this woman, blah, 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 right? So guys... That woman, that Eve, she's not at home now. She's down south, right? At a conference and you're finding out how valuable and precious and priceless she really is, right? So the human race has been at war with God ever since the fall and they've been at war with each other ever since the fall. The story is told about a man and a woman who were having marriage problems and decided to end their marriage after a very short time together. The judge asked the husband, what has brought you to this point where you are not able to keep this marriage together? The husband said, in the six weeks we've been together, we haven't been able to agree on one thing. The wife said, seven weeks. <laughs> Sound familiar? It's been said that the only two acceptable words to end a quarrel are, yes, dear. Any words other than yes, dear, are the start of a new fight. How's it working for you? Just in case you wondered, the words yes, dear, are not terms of endearment. And they're not words of reconciliation either. So the context is in the first chapter of Ephesians, where we were two, three weeks ago, Paul listed nine blessings that believers receive from God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Christians have been chosen, predestined, adopted, redeemed, forgiven, 
God has revealed his plans to us, his eternal plans. God has given us an inheritance. He has sealed us and secured us through the Holy Spirit. And our inheritance, our heavenly inheritance, is actually guaranteed by the presence of the Holy Spirit. So Ephesians 1 is all about the vertical relationship with God himself. And the first 10 verses of chapter 2, where we were last week, tell us how that occurred. The first two verses of chapter 2, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. We were separated from God and we were dead in sins, but God reached out, took the initiative and saved us by his grace. The last half of chapter 2, where we're going to be today, says that we were saved, but we were not saved in isolation. We were not saved as independent individual Christians. We were saved and adopted into God's family. We are part of God's own body. We are saved to be part of a community. So the first half of chapter 2 tells us how we're saved individually, how Jesus Christ came and saved us. The last half is about how we as believers live corporately in a group, in a family. So the first half is about the vertical relationship. The second half is how God accomplished reconciliation between people, specifically between Jews and Gentiles that he did on the cross. So Paul's theme in this last half of this chapter is peace. He uses the word peace four times in verse 14, 15, and twice in verse 17. Peace is precious because it's so rare. If we define war as any conflict in history that has cost at least a thousand lives, so definition of war is that it has to cost at least a thousand lives, then in the last 3,400 years of recorded history, there have only been 268 years without a war. That means the world has been at peace about 8% of the time. During that same period, over 8,000 peace treaties were signed. The vast majority of them were broken within 24 months. Can you imagine a marriage where there is only peace in the home about 8% of the time? Tragically, that's true in far too many cases. So Paul begins by describing the separation and alienation specifically that the Gentiles had experienced before they were saved by Christ. So we're going to start this in chapter 2, verse 11, and he's speaking specifically to Gentile Christians. Verse 11, Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were, at that time, separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Here's the principle. Before Christ, we were spiritually separated from God and socially separated from God's people. We were hopelessly alone in the world. Before Christ, we were spiritually separated from God and socially separated from God's people. We were hopelessly alone in the world. Now, Paul's world was as divided and divisive and warlike as ours very easily. There were a lot of barriers that separated people from each other in that particular area. There were a huge amount of social barriers in the Roman Empire. You had masters <clears throat> and you had slaves. 
Slaves resented their masters, and masters treated people like possessions, a massive divide. And there was a huge amount of slavery in the Roman Empire. There were lots of financial barriers between the rich and the poor. The poor envied the rich, and the rich were condescending toward the poor. The poor thought the rich were obviously greedy, and the rich thought the poor were obviously lazy, right? There were barriers within families. In the early church, when a wife often chose to follow Christ and her husband did not, that was the normal course of affairs, it could drive a very significant wedge in the marriage, especially when someone tries to convince the other partner that they're right. You ever tried to do that? Probably doesn't work too well. There were an enormous amount of ethnic, racial, and national barriers in the first century. The Greeks regarded everyone who could not speak Greek as uncivilized and barbarian. So if you didn't speak and understand Greek, you were the unwashed, and that was just the way it was. There were even barriers within the church. Many Jewish Christians believed that if you were a Gentile and you were going to become a Christian, you first had to become a Jew. You had to be circumcised, you had to obey the Mosaic law, then and then only could you become a Christian. In our world today, some things never change. Differences still exist. We have divisions between the rich and the poor, correct? We have divisions between the 99% and the 1%, however you want to label that. We have divisions between the more educated and the less educated, the powerful and the powerless. Lots of divisions between men and women, husbands and wives, employers, employees. And these differences can often turn into distance, divisions, debate, and conflict. In our culture today, we are divided over racial and sexual discrimination, immigration, political affiliation, sexual orientation, what correct language a citizen should speak, climate change, my rights, your responsibilities. Does this sound familiar? Our culture argues over an enormous amount of things that divide us. As a matter of fact, it seems as though our culture today is becoming more and more tribal. Here's the essence of that. People who agree with me are both right and good. And people who disagree with me are both wrong and bad. They are evil. What that allows us to do is treat anybody who disagrees with us as an enemy. And we justify it on, quote, moral grounds. Such is not the attitude of Scripture because it does not reflect the character of God. Even inside the church, we struggle with differences that divide us. Churches split, literally divide, over stuff like worship styles. Well, I like it casual, I like it expressive, versus somebody who likes it more formal and more structured. Doctrinal teaching, some people like expository, some people like topical, some people just like disorganized yelling. Depends on your opinion, right? We have lots and lots of pastors who uh, teach from God's word. We have an equal number of pastors who use Simon and Garfunkel songs as their theological base, and they do. We have lots of human opinion coming from the pulpit versus God's word. We have lots of divisions over music. Well, I prefer hymns, or I prefer blended, or I prefer contemporary. There is a very, very large church in the Midwest that the ushers pass out earplugs to everybody that walks in the door because it's 120 decibels plus 
and you will experience hearing loss in that church if you don't. So that's part of the, when you go in, they offer you hearing plugs when you walk down the aisle, that's what they do. We have differences of dress code. Some people like it formal, some people like it casual, some people like it sloppy. So just, you know, however it works. We argue over liberty and license in the church. What is free? What can I do? What is forbidden? What should I not do? Can I do whatever I please or does God have limits on what's called acceptable behavior? So we have lots and lots of differences and those can create division and cause human relationships that rupture and require reconciliation. So Paul is gonna begin his discussion here. He's gonna give us a historical perspective on the centuries old alienation between Jews and Gentiles. The Gentiles, first of all, Paul says, now he's talking to Gentile Christians and is reminding them of what they were before they met Christ. And he says, look, first of all, you were, or, you were alienated horizontally. You were socially alienated and isolated from the Jews because throughout most of their history, the Jews and the Gentiles hated each other. God had commanded Abraham and all his descendants to be physically circumcised. And that circumcision was a sign and a symbol of their covenant relationship with God. So it was a physical sign, an external sign of an internal reality. They belonged to God. You cut away the foreskin and that represented a separation from sin and a setting apart to God. So it was a, it was a spiritual reality that was manifested in a physical um, symbol. However, for the Jews, circumcision became just a ritual. If you were physically circumcised, you had a relationship with God, even if your heart was in the wrong spot. So it just became an empty ritual. It's like, well, I was born in America, so therefore I was a Christian. Well, hold it. That's like being born in a garage makes you a car. So there's this external circumcision that doesn't mean your heart belongs to the Lord if you were Jewish, but the Jewish people for most of their history thought if you're physically circumcised, you belong to God, your relationship's fine. The Jews called the Gentiles the uncircumcised. That word uncircumcised was as bad as any racial epithet you hear on the streets today. Probably worse. It was a sign of scorn, contempt, disdain. The Jews considered the Gentiles dogs, not pet dogs that you spend a lot of money on at the vet, but feral dogs, flea-bitten, wild dogs that should be destroyed. If a Jew married a Gentile on the day of the wedding, his Jewish or her Jewish relatives would hold a funeral for them because they considered them now dead. The Jews literally shook off the dust of their feet when they walked through Gentile territory so they wouldn't defile the Holy Land with Gentile dirt. That's how bad this division, this separation was between Jew and Gentile. They believed that anyone uncircumcised was a heathen who was headed for hell. On the other side of the aisle, the Gentiles despised the Jews and they hated them because the Jews did what? They claimed that God had called them as a special people and they had an inside track to God and they were proud of it. And you schmucks over there don't have an inside track to God, therefore I'm going to heaven and you're destined for hell and I'm happy about it. Gentiles hated the Jews because they looked different, they dressed different, they act different than any other people on earth. The Gentiles blamed the Jews whenever a natural disaster occurred. 
And anti-Semitism has been an ugly stain on the human race for thousands of years. This hatred between Jew and Gentile was as bad as the divide between blacks and whites in the deep south of the United States and as bad as the hatred between Shiite and Sunni Muslims in the Middle East today who literally despise and kill each other routinely. However, Paul says this horizontal isolation, this social isolation between Jew and Gentile is not the worst problem. Not at all. Far worse is their vertical spiritual isolation between God and them. The Gentiles were spiritually alienated from God. And he says, you're alienated from God in five different ways. He's talking to Gentile Christians before they came to Christ. And he says, before you came to Christ, you were separated, obviously. You were separated from Christ. You didn't have Christ, no Savior, no Messiah, no Deliverer, no divine purpose, no eternal destiny, no vertical relationship with God. You know, many of us have been in Christ for so many decades. We've had the Holy Spirit for so many decades. We've had the body of believers for so many decades. We really have forgotten how hopeless it is to be without Christ. When you look at behavior of people that don't know Jesus, it really shouldn't surprise us. There is no hope without Christ. I talked to a friend the other day and he thinks when you, when you die, you die like a dog. I mean, you're gonna die and you're going to the ground and push up daisies. So whenever somebody dies in his life, it is a tragedy. He's my one, I'm praying for him. Because there is no hope because there's no eternal perspective. Number two, they were not only separated from Christ, they were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. Gentiles were obviously not citizens of Israel, they were aliens and foreigners. And God's presence on earth until the time of Christ, God's presence on earth before the time of Christ was through the land of Israel. The land of Israel was the mechanism through which God interacted with human beings. The soil of Israel, actually the very temple. The temple, the tabernacle and temple was the meeting point between God and man for the entire New Testament. You want to know what God was doing on earth? Look at what he was doing in the land of Israel, specifically through the temple because the Holy of Holies was the place where he met with humanity. So God was the source of Israel's blessing. Israel was supposed to be a blessing for the rest of the planet, which they failed to do, but he was their king. Now, if you're not a citizen of Israel, it means you missed out on the calling and the blessing that came to the nation and from the nation through the planet. So they were separated from that. Number three, they were a stranger to the covenants of God. Now, God had not only blessed the nation of Israel with a place, with soil, with a temple, but he made them promises. Lots of them. And the whole baseline promise was the Abrahamic covenant. He made a promise to Abraham in Genesis 12. When he called him and he said, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. Anybody who blesses you, I will bless. Anybody who curses you, I will curse. And through your descendants, Abraham, I'm going to bless the entire planet. That's the Abrahamic covenant. A huge promise and that came to all the Jews. So God had promised Israel a land, a priesthood, a people, a nation, a kingdom, a king, and eternal life for all who believed in him. Vast number of covenants and promises that God made to the nation of Israel and the Gentiles participated in zero of those promises. They weren't Jews. The Gentiles before Christ, number four, were without hope. 
They had no promise from God. They had no personal Messiah. They had no hope beyond the grave. You know, if you've got no hope beyond the grave, guess what? Today is as good as it gets. Because tomorrow you're getting older. It's not going to get better. It's not getting better. I'm looking at you. It's not getting better for me either. With no hope, this is all you have, this life, and it's very, very short. That's why you see people without hope do some really strange things, trying to get thrills and happiness in this life. And the last one is really kind of the all-encompassing umbrella that covers us before we knew Jesus Christ. They were without God in the world. Now, most Gentiles at this period of time were polytheists. They believed in many gods. But they did not know the one true God because they had rejected it. And they were alienated from God. They were spiritually alone in the world. And the truth is, that's true of us. Every single one of us before Christ, we were alone in the world. We were at war with God. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We're humanly unable to respond to God. And you say, well, that's kind of a drag. It is. It's very depressing. However, with God, all things are possible. Nothing is impossible. And God had an eternal plan for reconciliation between humanity and himself. Verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you Gentiles, who formerly were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself, he's talking about Jesus, is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. Here's the principle. Differences often, maybe I should have said usually, divide us. But God makes peace between people by drawing them to himself through the cross. Amen. Differences often divide us. But God, Jesus makes peace between people by drawing them to himself through the cross. Now he says, you Gentiles before Christ were far off, far off. In other words, they were separated. They had spiritual distance and separation from God and his blessings. Where was God? in the Old Testament, through the land of Israel. They were living outside the land of Israel. They were geographically moved from the land of Israel. They were geographically moved from the temple. They were far away from the center of God's work on planet Earth through the temple. They were also spiritually separated. They didn't have the covenants of God. We've talked about that. And Paul says, Jesus Christ brought you near. He made you close. He drew you Gentiles into a relationship with himself. And that's true for us. Anyone who trusts in Jesus Christ for salvation is brought into spiritual intimacy with God himself. And those who were excluded, those who were on the outside, were now brought to the inside. Those who were, didn't have a relationship with God, that was all of us, are now included in the family of God. And he uses the word reconciled. Reconciled literally means to bring together. To bring together. Reconciliation is not a process. It's an act whereby our relationship with God is restored instantly through forgiveness. And Paul says to these Gentiles and to us, Jesus Christ himself is our peace. 
He doesn't bring peace only. He himself is our peace. He made peace on the cross through himself. If we belong to Christ, all of us individually, then Jesus Christ himself is the source of our peace, right? Here's one of the reasons why. If you have Jesus Christ living in you and I have Jesus Christ living in me, we have the most fundamental thing in all of life in common. You have Jesus, I have Jesus. The scripture says, my spirit bears witness with God's spirit that we're children of God. Jesus in you and Jesus in me is one and the same. So I am called to look at you and you to look at me through the lens of the love of Jesus Christ. So the love of Jesus Christ is the glasses through which we look at each other. And that's one of the things that brings us together. Paul furthermore says, Jesus Christ himself broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. Now that can mean a number of things. Some commentators believe that this is referring to the veil in the temple. Remember, the temple had a holy place and a holy of holies. And between them, there was the veil. It was four inches thick. This is a cloth veil, four inches thick. And when Jesus Christ died, it said it was supernaturally ripped open from top to bottom. Amen. Supernaturally done, which opened the way to have access to God symbolically. The barrier between God and man had been removed. Now, other commentators believe that this wall dividing Jew and Gentile was the wall in the temple that divided the court of the Gentiles from the rest of the temple courts. The Jewish temple was divided into several different partitions, several different courts. At the way extreme perimeter was the court of the Gentiles. So if you were a Gentile, you could only come so close and there was a wall. Inside that wall was another court and that was the court of the women. And then you had another court called the court of Israel where male Israelites could go. Then inside that you had the court of the priests. You had to be a priest in order to get inside that. Then you had the holy place where they offered the sacrifices. And then at the very core of the temple was the Holy of Holies. And only the high priest went into the Holy of Holies once a year with blood on Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement. So you had this series of walls that kept certain people at a distance from God. God lived in the Holy of Holies. The dividing wall between the court of the Gentiles and the court of the women was a four foot high marble wall in the temple. It was kind of a screen. It had 13 different openings, but there were walls. And it separated the Gentiles and restricted them from any closer access to God than that wall. Now, at regular intervals on this wall, there were tablets that forbade the Gentiles to go any further beyond that wall under penalty of death. One of those tablets or those inscriptions was discovered in 1871. This is what it said. Let no one of any other nation come within the fence and barrier around the holy place. Whosoever will be taken doing so will himself be responsible for the fact that his death will ensue. It was a capital crime for the Gentile to cross that barrier and to try and get close to God. Wow. However, I don't think Paul's talking about that physical barrier. Scripture indicates clearly that the real problem between Jew and Gentile was not a physical barrier. It was the spiritual animosity, the spiritual 
animosity which divided them. Jesus dealt with that by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, the warfare. And you say, what was the warfare? The Bible says right here, it's the law. It's the law. It's commandments. Abolish, by the way, is, means to make inoperative. It means to cancel. Have you ever had your credit card compromised? Anybody ever a credit card compromised? When your credit card's compromised, you cancel it, right? You call them up and say, my credit card's been compromised. You're rendering the credit card inoperative. You're canceling its effectiveness. You're making it essentially useless. So you can shred it and they'll send you a new one. Jesus Christ made the law inoperative, the old Mosaic law through his death. Because the old law said you have to keep the law in order to please God and no one can keep it. Jesus Christ said, I will pay your sin debt myself. Therefore, keeping the law as a means of pleasing God no longer is operative. Your, your faith is in the finished work of Jesus Christ, not in your own work. And it says he made the law inoperative through his own flesh. So Jesus did two things for us. He's our representative. Number one, he kept the law perfectly. No one kept the law perfectly except Jesus Christ. And number two, by his death, he paid the sin debt we could not pay. And so we can have peace with God and therefore peace with each other. So the specific barrier that they're talking about here, that Paul's talking about through the Holy Spirit, that created hostility between the Jew and Gentile was the Mosaic law. See, the Jews venerated the law. And they added to it. They added 613 commandments and they were really, really focused on obeying every rule. You know what the Gentiles thought about the Jewish law? A nuclear waste of time. I mean, you don't need it and it's unnecessary and you ignored it. So the Jews regarded the Gentiles with contempt because they believed that God only loved the Jews. The Jews literally felt the Gentiles were created as fuel for the fires of hell. Now, that would change the way you look at people if you believe that was true of them, correct? Now, the truth is, portions of the Mosaic law made relationships with Jews and Gentiles pretty hard to have because the Jews had some very specific dietary laws. You know, you don't eat milk and meat together. You, I mean, there's just a whole lot of kosher laws. So it literally was impossible for the Jews to share a meal with the Gentiles. It was almost impossible for them to actually go into a Gentile house and remain unclean. And you say, well, why would God give the Jews this rigorous set of commandments if he knew no one could keep them? That was the point. God gave the laws to the Jews to reveal, number one, his holy standards. My standards are perfection. Number two, to demonstrate that no one was going to be made righteous by obeying the law because no one could keep it. So if you have a perfect standard to keep and you can't keep it, Guess what? You know you need a savior. You know you need someone to keep the law and pay for your sins because my good deeds are not good enough to keep it. I was talking to somebody yesterday and we were having a little chat about God grading on a curve. So here's the question. On a scale of one to 100, this is a righteousness scale, a moral righteousness scale. If Satan is zero and God is 100, Satan is completely evil, no righteousness at all. God is completely righteous, no evil at all. Correct? Here's the question. Where are you? Give me, give me, give me a number. And the, and the world will say, well, no, I'm certainly above average. I got to be above 50. 
I mean, I'm better than my neighbor, you know. I haven't done X, Y, Z. I'm 70, 75. Question number one. Question number two. What's the passing score to get into heaven? What do you have to have? Well, I got to be pretty close. I would say if I'm 75, then God lets the 70 in. So I'm going to get in, right? So in order for that to work, we have to say that God is going to not impose a standard of perfection. He's going to be willing to live with some sin in heaven. I don't think so, right? He's perfect. He doesn't tolerate that. So here's the thing. God gave the law to demonstrate that his standard was 100% and to prove to everybody that you can't make it. So you need to trust Jesus Christ who did it on your behalf. So he gave the law to reveal our need for a savior and to open our eyes to the fact that we needed someone to pay that way for us. God takes the Jew and the Gentile through the blood of the cross and he makes them into one new person. He makes them into a Christian. Not Jew, not Gentile, new creation, Christian. Now, when he talks about new, he doesn't mean recent or new in time. He means new as in something completely different, something different in character, something different in kind or quality. 1 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, they are a remodel. Is that what it says? No, this is not a remodel. This is a brand new creation. The old things passed away. New things have come. Everything is new. Someone once said, Jesus didn't Christianize the Jews or Judaize the Gentiles. He didn't create spiritual half-breeds. He created an entirely new entity, the church, his very own body. So what once made us different and divided us, our differences, is now overshadowed by what we have in common that unifies us. And what we have in common is Jesus Christ. We each have a relationship with Christ, and he himself is the superglue that bolds us together. There's no Jew or Gentile, only Christian. Galatians 3, 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ, Romans 10, 12. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. By the way, you can fill in the blank. Anything that, does, does, that creates differences, put it in the blank there. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call upon him. It's kind of like being married. What, what's the key phrase? The two shall become one flesh. So a new entity... A new identity has been created when the two become one. Guess what? That's always supernatural. We can't do that. We can't make two into one. We can't bind up Jew and Gentile, slave and free, rich and poor. We can't do it. It's the work of Jesus Christ and him only. Verse 16. And that he might reconcile them both, he's talking about Jews and Gentile, into one body to God through the cross, having put to death the enmity, verse 17. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. Here's the principle. Jesus reconciled our relationship and gave us access to God when he paid the penalty for our sin by dying in our place. 
Jesus reconciled our relationship and gave us access to God when he paid the penalty for our sin by dying in our place. It says he reconciled them both in one body to God through the cross. There, there's literally two conflicts going on here. There's a vertical conflict, there's a vertical war with God. And that results in a horizontal war with each other. Anytime there's ongoing conflict between people, you can rest assured there's probably an unfinished vertical uh, uh, war with God going on. Jesus made peace possible between us and God when he paid our sin debt that had separated us from God. He paid that sin debt on the cross, reconciled that relationship. When we accept God's terms of surrender and peace by trusting in Christ's payment for our sins, the war with God stops. And now we experience peace with God, right? That's what salvation really is. The war with God has stopped. I'm now surrendered. I've accepted his terms of peace. I have faith that Jesus Christ is the one who paid my sins. I'm not trusting in my own good deeds. I'm trusting in his finished work. And I surrender my life to Jesus Christ. At that moment, I receive the Holy Spirit who guides, teaches, corrects, directs my life. The Holy Spirit is the supernatural life of God in us that convicts us of sin, that convicts us of pride, that convicts us of selfishness, calls us to repent so our relationship is restored. And as we surrender to the Holy Spirit day by day, we experience the peace of God, even in difficult circumstances. Now, God promised you peace. He didn't promise you comfortable circumstances. Most of us are not experiencing comfortable circumstances. That's just reality. We live in a broken world, and I don't know anybody in this class who either themselves or close personal relationships are not experiencing brokenness. That's the nature of living in a sinful planet. But Jesus Christ says, I will give you my peace in the middle of those circumstances. We now have the divine capacity to love the unlovely. We have the divine capacity to forgive the unforgivable. We have the divine capacity to be at peace with those who are at war with us and war with God. But that is not automatic. Peace is neither automatic nor easy, even between two believers. 1 Peter 3, 1 says what? Seek peace and pursue it. So peace between people and peace with God. Peace with God is God's work. Peace between people is God's work, but he involves us in that process. We have choices to make. Peace is both a choice and a commitment. See, as we are brought to God through Christ, Jesus Christ brings us together with each other. And there can be no lasting horizontal peace between people until you first have peace with God. That's one of the reasons why all the peace treaties in the world are not worth the ink they're written with unless you have a change of heart. Most peace treaties in past history have been, quote, eternal covenants. And as we mentioned, most of those eternal covenants have a shelf life of about 24 months. So the human heart, without the power of God, doesn't have the ability to make or keep peace with each other because sin and selfishness destroy the peace on an ongoing basis. As a matter of fact, you can pretty well say, it doesn't matter whether it's nations, spouses, family, friends, employer, employees, et cetera, et cetera, what kills peace 
is selfishness. What preserves peace is forgiveness. And if you're not willing to forgive, then you're going to be at war. I wrote this down and I'm struggling with it, but I'm going to lay it on you and you can argue with me later and you may be right. Here's the statement, and I'm not, I'm not sure I'm going to die with this one, but it's, it rings. Only forgiven people have the capacity to forgive. Forgiven by God. Because we don't have the supernatural capacity to forgive unless the Holy Spirit lives in us. The Holy Spirit doesn't live in us until we have accepted the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. Because my flesh doesn't want to forgive. My flesh wants to be right. And in most relationships, you have a choice. Either you can be right or you can have the relationship. But you can't have both. If you always have to be right, it means your partner in the relationship always has to be wrong. How's that going to work? Not well for long. So forgiveness is the key to reconciliation. I was just doing a little Wikipedia search last night about the Hatfields and the McCoys. Now that's a family feud. <clears throat> Actually, the movie, the, the, the series, the family feud game show, was based on that. Back in the 70s, that's what they did. And this, these two families didn't forgive for several generations. Over 100 lives were lost from both families because of an unwillingness to forgive. So Jesus came and he preached peace. He proclaimed peace. Of course, the peace that he's talking about comes from the gospel. Sinners are reconciled to God. And he says, by the way, he preached to those who were far away, the Gentiles, and to those who were near, that's the Jews. The Jews have been drawn near to God since Abraham, of course. And all believers, Jew or Gentile, are granted access to the Father through Jesus the Son. You and I, because of Jesus the Son, have instant access to the throne room of God at any time. Is that not amazing? Jesus is the peacemaker for everyone. Jew, Gentile, slave, free, rich, poor, male, female, red, brown, yellow, black, white. Everyone, Jesus Christ is the peacemaker. You just come on the basis of his blood. The story is told of a boy named Robert who wanted to see the King of England. One day he stood outside the palace gate, Buckingham Palaces, all day from the very early daylight until late, late, late in the afternoon, hoping to get inside and meet the king. He had told the prison guards what he wanted to do. Of course, they refused him entrance. Very late in the afternoon, another boy came out from the palace and the guards snapped to attention. The boy who came out from the palace escorted Robert into the palace and gave him an extensive tour of the palace. When they entered a particularly elegant room, there stood the king and his new friend said, Father, I would like to introduce you to my friend Robert. Robert, I would like you to introduce you to my father, the king. That's called access, right? You have that access to the father 24-7. So when you wake up at 2 in the morning, because you're worried about something, you have access to the father immediately, and you can bring that to him. Verse 19, so then you are no longer aliens and strangers, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and you are of God's household 
having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place of God in the spirit. Here's the principle. When we have peace with God, he gives us a place to belong, a family to love, and a purpose to serve. When we have peace with God, he gives us a place to belong, a family to love, and a purpose to serve. You know, in God's household, there are no aliens, there's no second-class citizens, there's no foreigners, no strangers, no immigrants. We're all citizens who belong there. In God's house, everyone in the house belongs there, and they are treated as a complete equal fellow citizen with all rights and privileges of citizenship. Now, in God's family, you're not just a citizen of his kingdom. You're a member of his family. Citizens have rights and privileges based on what? Legal status. You're a citizen. You make certain promises. You make certain commitments. And you get legal status as a result of that. Family members don't have to take oaths of loyalty. Sometimes we wish they probably would, right? You should obey your parents. Didn't you sign up for that when you were born, right? But family members, their relationship with the family is not based only on verbal legal status that they swore to uphold. It's based on having the same blood, the same DNA as the parent. And you say, well, Brad, um, I'm adopted by God, right? We're all adopted into his family. None of us were came out of the womb. We all came out of the womb born in Adam. We're sinners. Jesus Christ reconciled us and he adopted us into his family. Here's the miracle of Almighty God. When you're adopted in his family, he gives you his DNA. He gives you his nature. He gives you himself. We were strangers, now we're friends. We were aliens, now we're citizens. We were sinners, now we're saints. We were enemies, now we're family. Okay, he, Paul uses another metaphor here. He uses the metaphor for the church and he calls us a building. He says, you and I are part of God's building. And he says, the prophets and apostles, the divinely inspired teaching, that's the foundation, it's built on truth. That's why we study God's word every week. It's the foundation for what we do. It's God's truth. And he talks about Jesus Christ being the cornerstone. Now, the cornerstone in an ancient building was the most important stone in the entire structure. When the architect and the engineer were going to build a structure, the very first thing they did <coughs> is they placed the cornerstone. And they placed the cornerstone because that was the angle of the cornerstone and where it was situated determined every alignment, every line of sight for the walls and the cross walls had to be in alignment with that cornerstone. So it was not just bearing the weight, it was, it was reflecting the design of what the ultimate building would be, the structure and the alignment and the layout. Normally it was the very first stone that was placed. Every other stone in the walls and cross walls was set in alignment with it. And our cornerstone is Jesus Christ. Christ. And our lives need to be founded on Jesus Christ and lived in alignment with 
Jesus Christ. That's how the building is sound and how it stands. And Paul says, look, every new believer is a new stone in God's temple. So you all are stones in God's temple. Guess what? God's still building his church, his building. He's got lots of walls he still wants to build, which means he's got lots of new believers he wants to put into his structure. Who's your one? Have you written them down? Her, child, adult, grandparent. Are you praying for him? I know Wade is. We talked about that. You need to be praying for that one. God has a place for them in the wall of the church. The opening's there. He's waiting. He wants them. You're a part of working with God in building his building. And it says the whole building, the whole church being fitted together. That means framed and, and joined closely in exact tolerances. So the building is the whole church. Of course, it's not made of physical buildings. It's made of people. Each person has a place in God's master blueprint. You not only have a place, you have a part to play. We have a job description. It says we are to be growing into a holy temple in the Lord. We are called to grow more and more like Jesus, to be part of building his church by praying for and obviously inviting people to church and loving them. And it says every stone in the building has to be shaped and fitted for its specific place in God's temple. I'm sure you've seen the National Geographic um, uh, historical uh, videos on the pyramids, Machu Picchu. You see, ever see these stones for the pyramids? They're fitted within tolerances like that. They had to shape those stones in order to fit them together. Same with cathedrals. It's the same thing. Every stone, we're the stones, have to be shaped and fitted for our specific place in God's temple. I'll give you an idea. Be shapeable. Be shapeable. It's far less painful. When the stone is hard, God has a bigger hammer. Right? Because he loves us enough to fit us where he wants us to be. And if we're stubborn... He gets out the bigger hammer because he's not going to not shape you to be like Jesus. He loves you way too much. He loves us way too much to leave us as we are. He's going to shape us like Jesus. Now we can either resist or we can cooperate. And I have been a fool who's resisted in the past and sometimes even does today. I will tell you it's far less painful to submit early. Just saying. If you want to avoid pain, obey early. It's interesting that Elijah was on the mountain. He heard the still, small voice of God. Job, late in the book, had to hear the Lord what? Out of the hurricane. I'd rather hear the still, small voice than the hurricane blow my walls down. Be shapeable. You and I are the dwelling place of God. And quite frankly, this stuns me. That God the Holy Spirit takes up permanent residence inside us. 
You and I are his sanctuary on earth. He lives inside us, God himself. Which means everything you do, you take him with you. And he experiences everything you experience. All those chips and dip, you force him to eat, right? When I used to smoke, he smoked right along with me, right? That'll kind of sober up what you look at every now and then. You go, whatever I'm looking at, the Holy Spirit's looking at. Okay, do I need to be looking at this? Whatever it happens to be. Don't ever take for granted that God himself lives within you. Everything you and I could possibly need has already been taken care of because the Holy Spirit lives in us. And God calls us not to live in isolation, but to live in a community as a spiritual family. Hebrews 10, 24. Let us consider, to think about, to plan, how to encourage, how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The word here is, you and I were meant to do life together. And that life together is expressed in some ways when we do a prayer and praises that Marty's going to bring to us here shortly. Because we do life together, which means we bear each other's burdens and each other's joys and each other's sorrows. By the way, Christians who share a common purpose and a direction accomplish far more with less effort than those who operate alone. God never intended us to be solo acts. How many of you ever noticed at certain times of the year you see geese flying over? How many of you ever seen a goose flying alone? Almost never. Why do they fly in formation? Ever thought about that? They fly in a V formation. So aerodynamic engineers have done a number of studies and they have shown that as each goose flaps its wings, it provides an uplift for the bird immediately following it. By flying in formation, the entire flock can fire, fly 71% further than if they all flew alone. Now that's an unbelievable increase in efficiency by flying together. 71% more distance on the same energy expenditure when you fly together because if you fly directly behind another goose, when they flap, they give you an uplift. That's what we are doing with each other. We provide uplift for each other. When the lead goose gets tired, they rotate to the back and then another one flies point. And you know what the geese do? They honk. That's called encouragement. That's what we should be doing with each other, correct? Encouraging one another, helping each other, lifting each other. God really did design us to do life together. And that's the whole point of this reconciliation. Reconciliation with God, we do life under the authority of Jesus Christ and with his eternal love filling us with the Holy Spirit. And then we are reconciled on a daily basis with each other so we can experience spiritual community. Let's summarize. Point one. Before Christ, we were spiritually separated from God and socially separated from God's people. We were hopelessly alone in the world. Number two, differences often divide us. And by the way, as Christians, that's still the case. Differences can still divide us. But Jesus makes peace between people by drawing them to himself through the cross. You've heard the notion in a marriage, you have a husband and wife, right? Think of a triangle, husband, wife, you know the best way to get close together? Draw toward Jesus. Jesus is at the top of the triangle. When the husband and the wife move closer to Jesus, what happens? They get closer to each other. That's the whole point. 
Number three, Jesus reconciled our relationships and gave us access, access, 24-7 access to God when he paid the penalty for our sin by dying in our place. And lastly, when we have peace with God, he gives us a place to belong, a family to love, and a purpose to serve. And you will hear that at this body of believers in Valley Baptist over and over and over again because we really were designed to do life together. Now that you know, do. Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to manabiblepodcast at gmail.com and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today. And now that you know, do.